Well, the last few weeks we have been looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we have made uh, lots of mentions of what I have been referring to as date setters, uh, that they know the date when Jesus is going to come. Uh, Shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was already a group of people running around saying he had come back, and by the late first and second centuries, Uh, date-setting began for people who didn't believe that he had come back. Uh, Many of you know that the Crusades were wars that were uh, designed to win back the Holy Land, but there has also been throughout history uh, many wars against heresy. There have been wars against uh, paganism. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, some date-setting and second-coming teaching was taken to such an extreme that there were wars and violence to make converts. Does that make sense to you? It makes none to me. Historians say that in the Middle Ages, Pope Innocent III uh, decided he had a prediction on when Jesus would return. He took the date of the founding of Islam, 618 A.D., and added it to the number 666, and said that Jesus would return in 1284 A.D. Guess that didn't happen. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, said that Jesus would return in 1832. When he did not, he said, Jesus won't return till I'm at least 85, so it'll be at least till 1890. So everybody was waiting till Joseph Smith turned 85, but he was murdered at the age of 38. William Miller uh, had a large end times following. The people called themselves the Millerites. They said that Miller said that Jesus would return in 1843. And when that didn't happen, he said, oops, I made a mistake. It'll be next year. Ellen G. White, one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventists, uh, claims to have more than 2,000 visions. She predicted that Jesus would return in 1850. When that didn't happen, she predicted that it would be 1856. In 1874, Charles Taz Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness, predicted that the rapture of the church would happen in 1910, then the second coming and the end of the world in 1914. That was the most famous of the nine times the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted uh, and been wrong about the second coming. I recently read, now I haven't uh, been able to verify this, that they are still uh, predicting dates, but at least nine is enough to tell me that their organization is full of false prophets. Uh, enter 1948. Israel becomes a nation. Uh, shortly after that, we get into the Cold War with Russia, and end times becomes an industry Uh, Many people, I'm sure, meaning well. Other people, outright thieves. And when you take the Israel becoming a nation, 1948, plus generally a generation is 40 years, plus one generation, you come up with 1988, which was the year. So that's the year I became a Christian. And people said, good year, right? Because the Lord's coming back this year. And there was a book written, uh, 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1988. Uh, when that didn't happen, uh, the same author wrote a book the next year, said 89 reasons why the Lord will return in 1989, but uh, that didn't happen either. Uh, others have written books saying that it will be UFOs that will come for us. 
are any of you brought here by a UFO? Just checking. And uh, then, of course, there was, there was Y2K, when the whole planet was just supposed to disintegrate. Uh, then, of course, many of us know there was Harold Camping. And Harold Camping made a couple predictions in the 90s, and he made the last one in 2011, and then he just disappeared when everybody came and told him that he was wrong. Sorry, Harold. These are only a few of the hundreds, if not thousands, of predictions of when the rapture of the church or the second coming would occur. And I guess all those people would just simply say this, don't blame me, Jesus was late. I still stand by my prediction, which I've been making from the beginning of this study as being the correct one. When will Jesus return? Right on time. (laughs) Right on time. Uh, To be honest, the the failures of of so many uh, does not make me doubt Jesus and the Word of God. It actually makes me trust Jesus and the Word of God all the more. Why? Because in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, we'll be talking more about that in a second, Jesus said this, Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So let's put ourselves in the context. It is Passover week. The triumphal entry or Palm Sunday has already happened. Jesus has, it's Passover week. The city is packed of Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple. He was debating, he was teaching, he was debating with the religious leaders. And, uh, you know, it's a couple days before the cross. He's been rejected by the religious leaders. And he left the temple and he predicted that the temple would be destroyed. In Matthew 24, 3, we are told this. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's why we call it the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24 and 25, a private teaching, as we'll see, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when will all these things be, so let's think about when, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So really, when he he began with what will be the sign of his coming, and that was verses 4 through 35. And now that's the what. And in verse 36, he begins to talk to us about the when. And verse 36 is the only verse we're doing today. It's a controversial verse, but it's so important for our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And and so I want to read it again, but I'm going to go slower this time. But of that day... Let's just say the second coming, the return of Jesus, and our, no one knows. Hmm, what does he mean? Some of you are like, that's easy, Pastor Jim, no one knows. (laughs) Not even the angels of heaven. Now, some of your Bible versions say, nor the Son, but the one I read out of doesn't say that. But some of your versions say, nor the Son. That's what we call a textual variant. What, what, what does that mean? That, that means that, that the ancient manuscripts, and we have thousands and thousands of them of the New Testament, more than any other ancient document, some of them have nor the sun, and some of them don't. So scribes, people, they didn't have printing press, they didn't, you know, cut and paste, or, you know, just, you know, print their book online or something like that. They would write them, and sometimes we come across these variants in different manuscripts And we think that the people who wrote them either added it in or deleted it. Sometimes they would add something to give more understanding, or sometimes they might delete it, go, oh, that doesn't make Jesus look uh, very very good. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, 
but or, nor the son possibly is in there, but my father only. So what's helpful in these kinds of situations is if you have them in the Gospels, the four Gospels, the story of the life of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ, is to go to the parallel passages, the same passages in the other Gospels, and we have here in, one in Mark. Mark 13.32 says this, But of that day, has Jesus saying in the same time, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, so he has nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, based on Mark's account where he has nor the Son, which is in all the manuscripts, I vote for that it was deleted by the manuscript used in the version we're using here, the New King James Version, and that it does belong there, that nor the Son, that Jesus does not know the day or the hour of his return. And so the title of our message today is, Why Didn't Jesus Know the Date of His Return? Now, I'm considering today an introduction to a new section. This is the introduction to the second half of Jesus' last sermon, this private sermon before the cross. And, 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 it, and it starts really with, with a, one of the main points that Jesus wants to make to us. And that is that no one knows when. He wants us to live with an expectancy. He wants us to be ready of his imminent return. Uh, you would think when Jesus says... No one knows that would end all the date fixing. Um, but uh, people would have to admit, he locked us out. We, we don't exactly know. Now, some would say, and, and to be fair, some would say, we can't know the day or the hour, but we can know the year and the month if we look back at everything we saw in the previous section uh, prior to this. Others would counter and say, well, okay, I, I get that, but, but that is the beginning of what we call the day of the Lord, which is not specifically a day. Some people think Jesus is talking about a specific day. Other people would say the day of the Lord is a time period where things happen over time, and nobody would know the beginning of, of the day of the Lord when everything would start to happen. And, and so... So whether it's the, the day of the rapture, God taking his church out of the world, whether it's the beginning of the tribulation, something else we talked about, or it's the end of time, Jesus says, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. It's always, always seemed kind of funny to me with the angels here. The angels know God. They live with them in heaven. They're tight, right? <laughs> God tells them a lot of stuff. He doesn't tell us. Uh, but they don't know. When Jesus will return, but some people on earth say they do. <laughs> uh, some people apparently are smarter than God, smarter than Jesus. Uh, everybody has been wrong up till now. And, and what is actually sad is that a lot of times in their predictions, what they do is they take people's eyes off Jesus instead of making the point which he is going to make for the rest of the chapter and on into chapter 25, that we are not supposed to be so concerned with the date, we are concerned with being ready. Ready for that day. Being prepared. That's what we'll be talking about, Lord willing, next week. Now, we've said in the past there's, there's good reasons why we're not told. Uh, some people might just procrastinate. <laughs> 
why bother? I know when Jesus is coming back. I'm, I'm just going to wait till the very end. I'm going to live large. I'm going li- to do whatever I want to do. And at the very end, I'm going to trust Jesus. I've actually met one or two people who've said that. And I've said to them, honestly, do you really want to follow Jesus? I mean, <laughs> what are you, what are you looking out the front door till your father comes home and like, oh, okay, you know, do the dishes now or something like that. And so I don't really think that's a very sincere belief. Uh, some, if they knew the, the date, might not be faithful. They might not be serving the Lord. And others have the attitude of, well, what's the point, man? Why should I do anything? Jesus is coming soon. Um, that is the point, <laughs> okay? The, the point is that we don't know when he's going to come or we don't know which day is going to be our last, And just maybe this is me, but seriously, um, if you knew the date that Jesus was going to come, how could we lead a normal and faithful life? I mean, we really can't even do it now, can we? I know some of you are very spiritual. You come to early service. I get that. I get that. But, But we would be all over the place. We're like messed up. Should I do this? Should I do that? Oh my gosh, he's coming back! You know, you know. I don't want to be caught eating like you know a super sized you know meal at McDonald's. Oh my gosh, got to go to the health food store. Oh, but but I should be able to eat what I want because it won't matter. You know, be crazy. We would have to close down our email and our phones and stuff like that. It would be just this insanity. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Way back when Moses said this: the secret things belong to the Lord our God. This goes under the classification of secret things. The day and the hour of when everything is going to begin, that, that belongs in the, in the secret things. But those things which are revealed belong to us. That's what we'll be talking about in getting ready. He's going to make that plain to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Uh, I found the... Uh, words of a fellow by the name of Richard Glovers to be quite helpful on this. He said this, no day is named that every day may be hallowed. We don't use that word very much. We think of it as being a special day. Every day be special or made holy. We would, that every day may be made hallowed by the sense of the possibility of it being the day of his advent, of his appearing. That's why we call Christmas time the advent season of his appearing. It helps to hallow or keep holy each day of life to realize that before its close, we may be in the presence of Christ's glory. Old words, but very, very well written, I thought. Uh, In verse 36, though, it catches many people off guard, knowing that the Scripture clearly teaches, we covered this way back in chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is God become a man. And you may say, now how is it possible that he could not know? Well, detractors say, see, it isn't true that Jesus is God become a man, while careful Bible students would say that's the exact opposite of of what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that Jesus is God become a man. Again, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus was referred to as Emmanuel. Even people who don't believe in Jesus sing that song, which Emmanuel means God with us. So God became a person, or God became a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he came to earth, as Matthew told us in chapter 1, to save his people from his sins, from their sins. So the most important part of being ready is to make sure you're one of his people. That's how you do that, by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. 
In order for all of this to happen, the Lord had to become a man. We call him the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord had to become a man, Jesus, and live a perfect life in your place and in my place in order to die a perfect sacrifice on the cross in order to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. Now, one of the glorious, and I do mean glorious, so don't, don't think I'm just trying to patronize anybody here for this, is one of the glorious challenges of our church, and Pastor Neil and I talked about this the other day at length, is the differences in, among the people in our church. Now, I'm not talking about the way culture measures differences. We talked a little bit about that in a Colossians message, the last Colossians message we did on a Wednesday night. Uh, but, but in the sense of some of the people in our church are not followers of Jesus. They're coming here. They're checking it out. I couldn't be happier that you're here. If that's you, I couldn't be happier that you're here. I remember that was me back in 1988. And uh, it would have been cool with me if Jesus came in 1988, but I'm glad for your sake he didn't come in 1988. So, so I'm glad that you're here checking it out. There's other people in our church, they may not, some are not followers of Jesus. Others of you are brand new to this, and, and, and you're trying to sort your way through. And I remember what that's like. You don't really know much of anything, but you don't want anybody here to know that you don't know much of anything. That's just pride, right? It's okay, and we'd love to pair you up with somebody who does know something. And, and so you can learn more or put some resources in your hands to help you to, to, to learn more. Uh, some of you are very seasoned. I mean, you remember Moses. You knew him, right? <laughs> and, and so you've been a Christian for a long, long time. You know, I was born Christian. I'll die Christian. I'll be Christian in between. And uh, that's great. Most of us are just in between somewhere. Although I will, I will say this, there, I, have a, I have a special love uh, in my heart for people that have been Christians for a long time and love to hear the story of God over and over and over again. There was a woman who used to sit here years ago, and, and she was older, and, and, and she would say she was a little bit hard of hearing, and I could hear her, and I don't know if everybody else could, but I didn't care. She was such an encouragement to me, and, and she'd say, here he goes, he's going to preach the cross. Here he goes, he's going to preach the cross. And so, and she'd been a Christian a long time, beloved, beloved saint. That means that, that, that there are some things that we have to teach some of you. For some of you, some of the stuff that you're going to hear today might be the first time, and for others, it will be a review. And again, I think it's... Um, a good sign to you when you hear stuff that you already know that it has the effect of making you still love Jesus more instead of like, oh, heard this stuff already. Should have drank some more coffee before the message. This verse right here is actually a very important part of what theologians call Christology. Christology. And Christology is simply... Uh, the study, and I'm really simplifying it, the study of the person of Jesus Christ. And the, it, it encompasses so many things. In chapter 24 and 25 here of Matthew is a Christological study of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remember we said, even if you believe the rapture is true, I do believe that of the rapture of the church before uh, the second coming of Jesus. It's not here. 
It's not here in, this, in, this cha- in chapter 24 and 25. And, and so this is a Christological study on the, on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, chapters 26 through 28 um, are, are, are a Christology on the cross and the resurrection. That's what we're going to be learning about and discussing in our small groups in the, in the fall. The, the, the actual crucifixion of Jesus, what it meant, and the, and the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And there are many other aspects to it. We, there are many other aspects to it. It's a, it's a large study. Uh, in fact, not this Wednesday, but, but the following Wednesday in Colossians, we will enter into what I believe to be one of the greatest Christological passages in the entire Bible. And so the Christology here of this verse, no one knows the day or the hour, you're right, no one knows, angels don't know, son doesn't know, only the father knows, uh, has to do with, if you will, Christmas. Merry Christmas. Feels like it in the weather, doesn't it? Has to do with what we call the incarnation and reveals an important aspect of God becoming a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Here Jesus discloses something very, very important to understand correctly about him. His voluntary limitation of his divine attributes and attributes and power when he became a man. In fact, you might think of it this way. He existed as God and he existed he added being a man to being God. So picture Jesus as God. He then comes to earth and he adds humanity to himself. So in that sense, Jesus of Nazareth was truly God and truly man. Now, one of the great passages on this is Philippians chapter 2. We'll put the uh, words up on the board. If you want to turn there, you certainly can in your Bible. And I'm going to read verses... 6 through 8, with a lot of interruptions. Now, verse 5 ends talking about Christ Jesus. So then we go into verse 6 where it says, who being in the form. Now, that word form is the word morph, and it means really the, the essential nature or the essential being. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Another version says this, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another one says this, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7 says, but made himself of no reputation. He became a, a, it was born in a stable, probably a cave, lived in a lowly town, was a lowly carpenter. Really, nobody knew much about him until uh, he became 30 years old. Uh, some versions say, but emptied himself. Now, a lot of theology comes from that expression, but we have to be careful about how we think about that. We'll talk about that in a second. Taking the form that's, that's that word morph, the essential nature of a bondservant and coming or born in the likeness of men. Another version says he had come as a man in his external form. Verse 8, and being in the, found in appearance as a man, another version says in human form, he, now remember this is God, 
humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's read up the same version in J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. Says, and Phillips says this, For he, who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave. Now, most of our versions clean it up with the word servant because it's not the same kind of slavery, the horrors that took place in the southern United States. By consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as a mortal man. And having become man, he humbled himself by living a life in, of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying. And the death he died was the death of a common criminal. Now, you might say, what in the world does all this mean? We have to be very, very careful here. First, we see the humility of Jesus, that God came down the stairway of heaven. Led Zeppelin fans, come back. God came down the stairway of heaven. He humbled himself, okay, and he was obedient to his Father, leaving heaven, coming to earth, and dying on the cross, So when we take what Philippians tells us, written by the Apostle Paul, we combine that with the verse we read, that Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. We see in this moment that Jesus, while he's talking to the apostles, voluntarily laid aside certain divine attributes when he became a man. Now, this is where we have to be very important. Jesus did not lose those attributes He chose not to use them. Very important that we understand that. He didn't lose them. He chose not to use them, okay, because, and and he chose instead to live as a perfect man and only did what his heavenly Father directed him to. To lose them, if he just lost them, Jesus would cease to be divine. Instead, what you have in the coming of Jesus Christ is the perfect union of two natures, of God and man. Now, again, we have to really be careful here. This doesn't mean he's 50% God and 50% man. That's not what this means. This means that Jesus, then known as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, is not was, is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus lost none of his divinity when he added humanity. Say that again. Jesus lost none of his divinity when he added humanity. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, is this important? This is the heart of Christianity. This is it. The whole scripture does not work without this. The New Testament does not work without this. And so, you know, people might say, right, uh, they're Christians, but many will say they don't know this. I've talked to many people, and they're like, I I never heard of such a thing. Where where have I been? Let let me give you some, some verses. John 10, 30. 
Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. When we get into his crucifixion, say, they say, You being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus doesn't go, Oh, you misunderstood me. He doesn't say that at all. He's like, You got it, you got it, you got it. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Literally, that means he is the replica or the duplicate of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Another version says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Another version says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. So you might say to me, well, Pastor Jim, what divine attributes could, did Jesus lay aside? Well, we certainly could not answer that. In, you know, Ken just said trying to explain the Trinity in 10 minutes is impossible. By the same token, we could not explain all of those things. So let's just go through a few of them. We know that, that, that God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at the same time. We've used the example before. Uh, God is in the hospital right now. And he is in the room with a family who is about to lose a loved one. And they are grieving. And they're saying, Lord, help us. Please help us. Heal them. Help us. And he is there with them. And he's also in the maternity ward where another family is crying tears of joy because they're holding their little baby for the first time in their arms. And he is omnipresent. He is in both places at the same time. I go to hospital like, visits like that, and I have. And I'm like a wreck. I always go to the baby first, so I'm in a good mood. Right? <laughs> but I'm a wreck, man. I walk out of there, and I'm just a sea of emotions, and that's not normally like what I'm, what I'm always like. So, so... So Jesus was, I mean, the, God is omnipresent. He, was every, he can be everywhere at the same time, but Jesus was in one place at one time. When Jesus wanted to go to somewhere, he didn't say to the apostles, hey, you go over, walk over there, I'll meet you there because I'm already there. <laughs> he didn't say that to him. He didn't say that to him. You know, he, he walked. He took a boat. He got on a donkey. We also know that God is omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. Yet Jesus ate and slept like we do. He did his miracles for others. He didn't do them for himself. I mean, Jesus could have been like, listen, I don't need to eat and drink. I could just, I run on 24-hour God energy, man. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Some of you are like, I wish he'd give me some of that. Jesus limited his miraculous powers. Again, he didn't do miracles, the stuff that helped him. And at certain times when there was unbelief was so bad, he just walked away. We also know that God is omniscient, that God knows everything. But there were times when, when God the Father did not reveal things to Jesus. And now you're thinking, okay, this is one of those. Let me give you a classic example of what I'm talking about. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is about 12 years old. And it says this in Luke 2.52 of the young Jesus that he increased in wisdom. Isn't that amazing? God knows everything, yet Jesus limits his ability to know everything. And he had to learn from the word of God just like we do. 
You know, he didn't come out goo goo ga Bible verses. <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't, he did, you know, they didn't take him back to, you know, to where they were staying. He's baby five days old, and he's going, no need to potty train me, Mom. No diapers. I'm good. <laughs> None of that. He had to learn, just like we had to learn. What does that tell you? This is so humbling. This is so humbling. This tells us that Jesus was teachable. Man, man, is that humbling to me. That, that, that we, so many times, we think we know what we're doing. And maybe even at this point, he's, God is still teaching Jesus, still showing him things that are, that are going to happen. Jesus came to do the will of his heavenly Father, but it was not his Father's will to know the day or the hour, so Jesus laid aside his omniscience. He laid aside his knowing everything. Now, these limitations are necessary for Jesus to be truly human. And personally, I think that in Matthew and Mark, this may be the clearest statement of Jesus' humanity, that he didn't know. Certainly, I would say it's the clearest statement in all of the Gospels. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, before you say, um, well, I know what happened. They all got together and planned it. Um, They really weren't together after Jesus ascended into heaven and they started writing as much as you might think, Um, especially the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who we just read what he wrote in Philippians, was not one of the original apostles. He hated Christians. He was a later life convert, if you will. He was a later addition to, the, to that. And, and, so, and so Mark, and Mark, who got, we believe got his gospel from Peter and Matthew, they wrote in different places. They were not in the same place when they were writing. Now, historians call this, whether it's secular history or biblical history, they call this the criteria of multiple attestations, which means independent sources reporting the same thing. Now, many people will say, and I've had this discussion with numerous people, that uh, they, they are Christian, but they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe that Jesus is God become a man. I want to be as kind as I can, but I want to be as honest as I can. If that's you, you're not a Christian, as the Bible would define a Christian. You're not one. You have embraced something called docetism, and that's an early heresy of not embracing the full humanity of Jesus Christ. I would also venture a guess that the humility the love and the condescension of God becoming a man, living among us in the perfection, living in a pool of sin, and dying on the cross in our place for our sins hasn't broken your heart yet. Notice I said yet. And when it does, it will open a whole new world to you. I remember when I first became a Christian, I I felt like I could finally breathe. I felt like the cinder block that was on my chest for so many years was finally lifted off. And I felt like a a blind man who all of a sudden somebody just opened his eyes and allowed him to see. 
The truth is that the, the man Christ Jesus, as the Scripture calls him sometimes, was, was tempted. The, in, the Scripture says that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ, in his humanity, man, he felt those nails going into his hands and his feet. And he experienced everything that you and I do as part of being a human, the ups and the downs of life on earth. But also of importance, though, is although Jesus did not know, uh, notice he didn't say the wrong thing. (laughs) Notice he was not a date setter. He didn't, he didn't say the wrong thing. Jesus didn't have what most of us have to some extent, or a lot of people, some of us have it worse than others. Jesus didn't have fear of man. Some of us are so afraid of just simply saying, I don't know. I don't know. But this was also part of Jesus' sinlessness. His judgment was right, and he was not afraid to say, I don't know. He was willing to trust his Father. The old, uh, old Bible commentary but from a guy named John Broadus and uh, back from the 1800s founded a, a seminary or was one of the presidents of, one of, of a seminary. He said this, And if the God-man, the mediator, left this and many other things to the Father alone, how cheerfully should we follow, follow his, we, his followers rest in ignorance that cannot be removed. We might put that sentence this way that we rest in things we will never know. Trusting in all things to our Heavenly Father's wisdom and goodness, striving to obey His clearly revealed will, and leaning on His grace for support. That's why I often say to you, you say, I don't don't understand the Bible. I read a whole chapter and I only understand one or two verses. Be concerned about what you do understand. What you don't understand will come in time. But obey what God has told you, what you do understand. People will knock on your door or you might explain to them about God become a man, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they will say to you, I don't believe in the Trinity. That that makes no sense. I believe believe in one God. And you, you look at them and you say, I do believe in one God. A triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they'll say to you, no, well, that couldn't possibly be true. I'll just give you one of my things that I won't, I don't say it snarkily. I try to say nicely to them. And I will just simply say this. I've said this to somebody recently. Um, Do you believe God is love? To which they will go, well, yes. Like everybody believes that. Duh. You're a pastor. You don't know that? Do you believe God is love? Yes. I'll say, okay, fine. If God, if there's only one God, there's not a trinity, who did God love before he made man? Oh, he loved the angels. Okay, who did he love before he made the angels? Uh, uh. Are you saying that love was something God had to add to himself? God is perfect. He doesn't have to add anything to himself. Are you saying that God, love is something God had to add to himself when he uh, created these, these beings? The truth is that before God created man, before God created angels, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal Godhead, lived and still do in perfect love and in perfect harmony. And yet, in His great love, God Himself came and harmonized with humanity. 
I mean, just, just, just think about that for a second. He harmonized with his creation by becoming a man. Jesus is the glory of God clothed in human flesh. The God-man who experienced our lives. Yet he also has the power to help us. The compassion to be with us. And the scripture says that even now he is praying for us. You see, it is through Jesus Christ that we can connect with God on a personal level. And unlike other religions, God is not some distant deity. He is a man we can touch. He is a God we can touch. And it is by watching Him that this is how the human soul can be content and satisfied and give an unknown future to a loving and caring God who proved His love to us by becoming a man and dying on the cross. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, Jesus does not need you to know the date of His return, but you need to know Jesus to get to heaven. You need to know Jesus to get to God. Popular verse, Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, even now we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Phillips puts it this way, yet the proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. That means despite our sin against God, God Himself became one of us to offer you and I the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Our response to it is simply needs to be this to turn from our own self-directed lives to a God-directed life, to turn from our sin, to be willing to turn from our sin and to turn to God and to stop trusting in ourselves and to put our trust in Jesus Christ. The end of Philippians, the verses I read, I I read 6 through 8, verse 9 9 through 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, that is the worship of God, every knee will bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under earth, and that every tongue should or will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want the forgiveness of sins, if you want eternal life, you must bow the knee in this life. You must confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in this life because when the second coming comes it will be too late and we'll begin to delve into that next week well let's stand and pray